In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Matthew Amha, in for Jamie Poisson. This is a, an incredible package of bills. We've just made the, the, the decision as a, as a state and, and, and me as governor to just say, um, you know, we're protecting kids. On Wednesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed yet another bill targeting the state's education system into law. This one would defund state college programs that encourage diversity in higher education and limit the discussion of race in many courses. DeSantis says this has to be done because diversity, equity, and inclusion programs reinforce what he calls racial divisions. And these issues have been a driving force behind his presidential bid, which, according to the New York Times, could be announced as early as next week. Under his leadership, Florida has become the epicenter of the culture war. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. And in so many ways, his legislative focus has centered on public education and classrooms across the state. This effort includes a spate of bills like the so-called Stop Woke Act, which includes the decision to block a pilot program to teach AP African-American studies. Now to Tallahassee, where yet another controversial bill, the so-called Stop Woke Act, passed in the Senate and is now headed to the governor's desk. The Individual Freedom Bill bans schools from teaching history that may make some students uncomfortable. DeSantis said the curriculum lacked, quote, educational value. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. If you fall on the side of indoctrination, we're going to decline. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody... The Department of Education has also passed measures that critics say amount to book bans as teachers across the state have been told to take books off the shelves or cover their libraries entirely until state officials can visit classrooms and assess their books for appropriateness, title by title. So today, we're talking to a high school teacher named Alex Ingram, who taught in Jacksonville, Florida, for a decade before deciding that teaching there had become untenable and leaving Florida for good. Hi, Alex. Hey there. So you're from Jacksonville, Florida, Duval County, and you worked as a high school teacher for a decade in the area. You've taught civics and AP government, but in 2020, you made the decision to teach an African-American history course. Can you talk to me a little bit about why that was? Yeah, so Jacksonville has a, a long history of, of race and racism um, and the interplay between those two. And specifically, um, the murder of Jordan Davis 
as well as the murder of Trayvon Martin, and then more recently, Amon Arbery and then George Floyd, um, really kind of brought that to the forefront. And um, kids had questions. Uh, and it was in the course code. And so we decided, I talked to my administration, to start an African-American history course. The kids were really responsive to it. They really uh, got a lot out of it. And um, it was a joy to teach. If you could take us into the classroom for a second, how how were students responding to now being able to learn about Black history in their state? So students, you know, were really surprised, I think, oftentimes in the course, um, both in the the frankness of the course, but also they saw it as very eye-opening and, and telling a story that's not often told and has even been silenced in the past. And a lot of the students really used it as sort of an on-ramp for political activation. Um, for many of them, that was the first time that they started thinking of themselves as political beings in, in, a, in a democracy. Um, they would see some, kids have a very strong sense of justice and injustice, mm. and they could you know, very easily see what's occurring in the news and try to navigate that as a political being. Um, and so that was really... As a teacher, that was really um, exciting. Mm. In your answer there, you mentioned some pretty high-profile cases of racialized violence or police violence that happened in in the state. And so, you know, I'm curious, in cases like, the uh, you know, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, in cases like the murder of Jamie Johnson and kids like Jordan Davis and, of course, Trayvon Martin, um, what kind of impact did you see those stories that were happening on a national level. Like, what what kind of impact did you see that happening in a material sense on some of the kids that were in your classes? Yeah. So you know, we talk about political socialization, and there's all these sort of different events that create um, who you are as a person and how you interact with politics. So for me, uh, my generation, it's 9/11. Um, for older generations, it might be the Vietnam War, the assassination of JFK, or uh, the assassination of MLK. Um, but for a lot of them, it's it's the murder of Jordan Davis or um, the murder of Ramon Arbery that really made them start to look at themselves as a in a political environment and try to navigate that in an intelligent way. Mm. So some of these stories are really foundational for for the kids in your classes. Oh yeah, like these these are um, moments of political activation, right? They are political on ramps where students are seeing themselves in in a in a political world and and trying to figure out how to pull the levers of democracy. And as a teacher, that's exactly what we want, right? Schools should be incubators of democratic citizenship. Um, and so when kids see injustice, right, like you want to engage with that. That's something that they're interested in, and that's something that's you know, powerful. Uh, and, you know, to try and help them navigate that is is a real honor. Mm. As it turns out, in the end, you, you didn't get to teach African-American history in Florida for very long, though. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about why that was? Yeah. So as your listeners might know, there was um, sort of an increased uh, militancy of these uh, school board meetings. And our personal school board uh, made the decision to uh, change the names of some schools that were named after Confederate soldiers. So uh, we had a Robert E. Lee High School. We had a Jefferson Davis Middle School. And so I spoke out personally uh, on the subject of those and encouraged them to change the names as, as a private citizen. 
And then, you know, things kind of went off the rails politically. Um, and I got uh, doxxed by the modern formation of the KKK. They don't call themselves that anymore, but uh, they their their goals are the same. Can I ask, like on a personal level, what is what is that like to be doxxed by extremists for 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 doing your job? Yeah, so I, I got into you know the job of, of being a teacher, knowing that it was going to be you know long, thankless, low paying hours. Uh, what I didn't know was that it was going to put me in uh, both emotional and physical danger and, and my family in danger. So my, my personnel file was requested, which had my, my address on it, and it was released without any question or, or, or quibble. And um, my supervisor, my principal, was called and emailed and harassed. Um, he received over 100 emails and uh, even more phone calls, uh, as well as the superintendent of the schools. Uh, basically claiming that I was uh, indoctrinating children, that I was teaching CRT and other, you know, absurdities. Mm. Am I right in saying that all of what you've just said kind of helped contribute to your decision to eventually uh, leave the state of Florida? Yeah. So I was, you know, doxxed by the KKK, but then you also have this political climate in Florida that really shifted uh, with the passage of the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill and the Stop Woke Act, which basically makes it impossible to teach black history or to even be a, an appropriate teacher. And so, you know, I put out my resume and uh, in December I got a job offer and by January I moved to New England. Mm. So, you know, wh- while you were still teaching in Florida, some of these laws that you're talking about started to target the teaching of African-American history in the state. There's the Stop Woke Act, which prohibits schools from teaching students anything that might cause them to, quote, feel guilt, anguish, or any form of psychological distress. And there are also additional measures like House Bill 1467, which deals more specifically with the teaching of specific books and with school libraries. So with all that in mind, can you tell me what school and classroom libraries actually started looking like once these new rules were passed into law? Education happens on the precipice of your own ignorance. Uh, You know, there are times in a classroom you should feel uncomfortable, right? Whether that's in a math class, in algebra, right? Or whether it's, you know, your first day of college, right? It is a normal experience to be uncomfortable when something is new uh, and being presented to you. Uh, And so those, you know, the verbiage of that law is is intentionally vague. You basically had um, teachers fall into three basic categories. You had one set of teachers that um, would completely empty out their bookshelves because these laws were written in such a, a vague and nebulous way. And so they would empty out their bookshelves and it it served as a type of protest, right? This is very reminiscent of, you know, the the memorials that we that the the Germans have to um, you know the book burnings that took place under Nazi Germany. Empty bookshelves are are a powerful image. The, those teachers emptying the bookshelves in many ways was a protest, like it's malicious compliance at that point. Um, the second set would cover up their bookshelves with paper, and that served in a way as, as, as a protest, right? That this barrier was erected between the child and, and a book or, you know, what learning, basically. And then the third um, and probably most difficult were the teachers that were at a lower risk tolerance. Teachers like myself, where... You know, you basically, you know, I decided personally to keep my books on my bookshelf and kind of looked at them, uh, my classroom library, 
library, you know, like, okay, Governor DeSantis, you can take my classroom library from my cold, dead hands. This is a broad tradition of, of, of political history in Florida, right? So um, it is not the first time we've seen, you know, this, this re- whitewashing and rewriting of history. It, it, it happened after the Civil War with the Daughters of Confederacy, uh, attempting to uh, filter books based on how they told the story of the Civil War or the, the War of Northern Aggression, as it's referred to in some in some textbooks. You know, it's it's terrifying to have to help, you know, your classroom neighbor load up their, their books um, into the back of their car because they're professionally and personally at risk if they don't comply with the law. So... Mm-hmm. The consequences of not following this this book ban is uh, not just a risk to your professional certification. It's also potentially uh, the same as carjacking uh, in terms of how long you're going to spend in jail if you're found guilty. As we've said, you have libraries papered up and you have teachers waiting for state authorities to show up and make a ruling on what is and isn't appropriate for classroom use. But I like I wonder, you know, from from your perspective, do you feel as though these new rules that are governing appropriateness in the classroom really give teachers a clear sense of um, what and what they aren't allowed to be teaching? Yes. Yeah, so the, the laws are intentionally ambiguous. Um, <clears throat> they're written in that way to to have this chilling effect. And so that way you're not sure, you know, what's within compliance and what's not. And and the design like that's that's there by design. They're written intentionally vague so that you you can't exist in that gray area at all. So you ha- the default is to clear the bookshelf. And they'll say, oh, it's not a book ban because these books are just going through a review process. Okay, well, when you're already talking about a school district that has been systemically defunded for generations, magically getting the funds to hire media specialists to review all of these classroom libraries, the, the resources just aren't there. Failing to adhere to these new guidelines is punishable by up to five years in prison. So with that in mind, has anyone actually been prosecuted under these new laws? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I think what you're, you know, you're dealing with is that teachers are already a fairly underpaid position. And in Florida, um, teachers do not have the legal right, the, the legal protected right to strike. What that means is that you are not only in a profession where you are systemically underpaid, but you are also, you know, lacking a lot of, of political power that might exist in other places. And so the ability to, you know, send a test case um, is is really limited. Mo- most teachers just simply don't have the financial resources to go through that that sort of hurdle of mm. not having a, a, a job for that that period of time while, while it goes through the courts. In March, a Disney film about Ruby Bridges, who was the first black child to desegregate an all-white school in New Orleans, was temporarily banned from a Florida school because one parent believed the film was, quote, racist and would teach white children to hate black children. Is this typical of the kind of power that parents have in Florida these days? So I think, you know, one of the things that, that I like to mention is that most parents are, are really have some level of witness in terms of what's going on in their kid's classroom. The arguments that are being presented at school board meetings are not being done by parents or former teachers or current teachers or administrators. 
um, or even grandparents or caretakers, they're normally being done by a very small and vocal minority of people, often from outside of the county uh, or the outside of the city. And so when the issues with the legislation, when the many issues with the legislation is that these the the law allows anyone in Florida to challenge any book in Florida, even if that person is not a parent. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Many of these new measures handed down by Governor Ron DeSantis focus their power on public education and the teaching of African-American history specifically. What is it do you think that DeSantis has identified in African-American history that makes the subject so politically convenient? Yeah, so it's it's this is a you know a long tradition um, in American politics of you know the the power of a euphemism. There's that Lee Atwater quote, right? You you can't say the N word anymore; that hurts you. So you have to uh, you have to say busing, uh, and then you get really abstract uh, and you start talking about cutting funds when you really know who whose funds you're cutting and who that hurts directly is black people, right? This is. Um, uh, a euphemism that that Ron DeSantis has found politically uh, advantageous in Florida. And then the second part of this is also like a long tradition uh, in Florida of rewriting history, right, and whitewashing Florida history. Florida has a lot of really amazing moments in social justice and racial justice, right? whether that's the, the wait-ins that happened in St. Augustine to desegregate pools and beaches, or Zora, the writings of Zora Neale Hurston, or you know uh, the the decimation of, of Rosewood, um, the Rosewood massacre, and so you know whitewashing that out is a way of taking power away from a minority. Mm. So you know you have mentioned there a number of you know really significant moments in Florida's Black history. You know you've mentioned Rosewood, you mentioned the writings of Zora Neale Hurston. You know, I mean, F- Florida also has a pretty deep history with the Ku Klux Klan and with chattel slavery as well. So I wonder, you know, for you, as someone who is both from the state but has also taught in the state, what do you think is lost if these stories and that history isn't passed down to the next generation? Yeah, I mean, we, we saw what happened when the Daughters of the Confederacy were successful the first time around. Um, black people lost political power. Racist laws were passed, uh, not just in the form of, of separate but equal, but uh, politically disempowering laws were passed. Poll taxes, grandfather clauses, white primaries, all of these things happen as a way to take political power away from a particular group. Um, and, and that same thing can happen again and is happening again. You know, we saw with something like uh, Florida had a, a constitutional ballot initiative called Amendment 4 that would restore the rights of, of returning citizens, people who have a criminal offense 
and have served their time and are now reintegrating into society, they would get automatically get their right to vote back. And you know, more than 60% of voters approved of this. And Ron DeSantis in the legislature quietly passed a law that said, oh, but you also have to pay your fines and fees on top of serving your time. And golly gee whiz, if you if you've got to pay money to be able to vote, that that sure does sound like a poll tax, uh, which in the United States is is unconstitutional um, by the 24th Amendment. This issue with African-American history in Florida classrooms is, as you've said, emblematic of a much broader war over public education in the state. Governor Ron DeSantis has gone to great lengths to reshape the scope of public education in so many ways. And so I wonder for you, as someone that was formerly working on the front lines there, what do you believe the goal of a project like that to be for Ron DeSantis? What's really clear here is that Florida is a petri dish of these racist laws, um, these xenophobic laws, these these hateful laws um, that are then going to be exported to other states. And potentially these laws are going to be exported to other countries even. And we've already seen this play out in school board races, both in the United States and, and Canada, right? That, that these otherwise very boring, uh, routine school board races uh, now become, you know, multi-million dollar races. You know, it's it's really terrifying. And so just as a kind of um, a way to ground this conversation now, you know, the former governor of the state, Jeb Bush, has been quoted as saying that Florida could be a model for the future of our country. And so I wonder for you, if Florida were to become a rubric for the nation when it comes to education, what do you think that might mean for the rest of the country? Right now, um, I, I these laws are... You know, they're saying the quiet part out loud right now, um, that they are intentionally trying to craft a set of laws that can be used in other places. This formula is not one of proper classroom pedagogy. This is not one of listening to stakeholders or, you know, listening to experts. It is one of populism and reminiscent of fascism. Okay, Alex, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. According to PEN America, a group that advocates for writers and free expression, more than 177 books have been banned in schools across the state of Florida as of March. These titles include Toni Morrison's Beloved and The Bluest Eye, The New York Times' 1619 Project, biographies of baseball icons Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente, and Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. That's all for this week. Frontburner was produced this week by Imogen Burchard, Derek Vanderweyck, Lauren Donnelly, Rafferty Baker, Jody Martinson, and me, Matthew Umha. Our sound design was by Matt Cameron and Sam McNulty. Our music is by Joseph Shabason. The show's executive producer is Nick McCabe Locos. I'm Matthew Umha. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.